If you would take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 6. We'll begin reading in just a few moments in verse number 5. Uh, today's a big day and that we kick off um, an emphasis that will carry us through October the 10th, 40 days of prayer and fasting. As you came in this morning, there was a table uh, out in the lobby with these booklets. I hope that you were able to pick one up. If you were not, there should be one there for you when you're dismissed this morning. If your preference is for a digital copy of that, you can find it under the Sunday morning button on your Longview Point Baptist Church app. If you don't have that app, you can download that at some point, but I want you to get your hands on a copy of this. So beginning September the 1st, we're going to enter into a season of 40 days of prayer and fasting. For some of you, that creates some excitement. For some of you, that creates some curiosity. And for some of you, that creates some panic. And um, perhaps understandably so, but we'll walk through all of that in the time that we have together this morning. I want to treat this morning's preaching time as an opportunity for instruction and guidance and direction for the next 40 days as we together uh, join our hearts together in prayer and give ourselves to the discipline of fasting uh, that we could draw near to God, that God would draw near to us. Y'all ready? Let's look together at Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and following. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 6 and verse number 5, here's what the Bible says. Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his words. You may be seated. Just to speak of fasting in a Western church context creates some degree of consternation. I hope that you'll be set at ease by the time our time this morning is over. But I, I want you to take note at how often in both the Old and the New Testaments, the disciplines of prayer and fasting 
are coupled together as a means of drawing closer to God, as a means of confessing sin, as a means even of overcoming some sin struggle in an individual's life, even crying out that God would intervene in the history of a nation, that God would intervene in the history of the world, that God would save souls as a means of calling out to God in corporate repentance over sin that a group or even a nation had involved themselves in over a, a period of time. In the book of Joel, chapter 1 and verse 14, the Bible calls the people of Israel. The prophet Joel says, call a solemn assembly and give yourselves over to prayer and to fasting as confession of sin, as repentance for your misdeeds. In Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before receiving the tablets that contained the Ten Commandments of God. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David had sinned grievously against God. There was a child on the way, the product of an adulterous relationship. God's wrath had come against David for adultery and for murder. And David fasted and prayed that God would relent in the judgment that had come against him. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, escaping as a fugitive from Ahab and Jezebel, fasted and prayed that God would intervene in his life and protect him from wicked Queen Jezebel. In Ezra chapter 10, Ezra fasts and mourns over the sin of Israel and prays that God would restore the primacy of his word in the midst of his people, that the people of God would give themselves over to heeding the commands of God's word. In Ezra chapter 4, the people of Israel are in exile and under grave danger. A decree has been made from King Xerxes that the people of Israel would be eradicated in the land. And, es and Esther fasts and prays that God would protect his people. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel had sought an answer to prayer. No answer had come, and so Daniel gives himself over both to fasting and to prayer until God is pleased to answer his request. Even in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 4, preparing for a time of great temptation and trial by Satan himself, Jesus commits to a time of 40 days of prayer and fasting in the wilderness before the temptation would come. In Acts chapter 9, the apostle Paul has a vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is saved. Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? Saul yields to the work of the gospel in his life and then gives himself to a season of fasting, seeking out the Lord's newly revealed will for the apostle Paul's life. In Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch is praying and fasting, asking that God would give them discernment as to how to move forward in their ministry. And during that season of prayer and fasting, God led the church at Antioch to send out both Paul and Barnabas as missionaries into the world's field. And then after this call, understand Paul and Barnabas have been called out. You realize that that prayer meeting the prayer and fasting of the church at Antioch resulted in the three missionary journeys that are the backdrop for the remainder of the New Testament and in large part are responsible for our being here today. We are standing on the shoulders of the church at Antioch coming out of a season of prayer and fasting. After Paul and Barnabas had been called out, they gave themselves further to prayer and fasting that God would prosper their ministries and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forward with great power. Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah looks out across the, the nation of Israel, the land of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, its broken walls and its crumbled temple and its battered homes. And he grieves and he expresses this sorrow and sadness in prayer and in fasting, asking that God would resurrect the once great city. 
In Jonah chapter 3, even in a pagan context, in a Gentile context, as Jonah comes reluctantly dragging his feet as he preaches the message of God, the city of Nineveh puts on sackcloth and ashes on their head and they cry out to God in repentance and prayer and fasting and God relents in the wrath that was to come against them. The disciplines of prayer and fasting have, for the history of humanity, served to be a means of drawing near to God. The book of James says that when we labor to draw near to God, God is pleased to draw near to us. I don't think that it's difficult at the present hour to make the case that the world, that the nation, that our area, that even the church, that individuals and families are a place and time in history where we need now to draw near to God and that God would be pleased to draw near to us. We're only now beginning to see the dreadful consequences of six months of isolation and quarantine. And I'm not talking about on the level of personal health and safety. I mean the psychological and the emotional and the spiritual consequences of being separated from fellowship and divorced from the assembly of the church. Even in the last couple of days, there's a new study that's out that says that the divorce rate over the past several months is up more than 34% in the United States. Quietly, even within our own community, isolation and separation and the challenges of the present hour are wreaking havoc on individuals and on families. Now, as much as ever before, we need to draw near to God. And oh, that God would be pleased to draw near to us. And so we embark upon this experience of 40 days of prayer and of fasting. Now, this is a little preemptive, but I, I want to point you to the early pages in your booklet. And I want you to note that there's a place there for establishing a plan and some goals for the next 40 days. Pages 5 and 6 provide you with some space and an opportunity to establish some goals. I want to walk through them because I can see the looks of confusion and panic on a few faces out there. You have there a, a place, an opportunity to identify a Bible reading plan for these 40 days, and you ought to do that. Say, this is my game plan for reading whatever you intend to read over the next 40 days. Try not to get away from campus today without penciling that in, and surely don't let the sun set on this Lord's day without having set these plans. I'm not saying you need to set out to read the whole Bible in 40 days or anything like that. It may be a brief book. It may be selective passages. There may be something that the Lord has put in your heart, but be diligent to read the Bible faithfully over these next 40 days. Establish for yourself a daily time of prayer. This is going to be my window of time when I'm going to commit to prayer. Now, here's a fascinating thing that, that I'm experiencing more and more. As I share the gospel with people and try to invite people into a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus, I'm astonished at the number of people who, although they do not know the gospel and do not know Jesus, respond to those conversations with well, I, I pray, or, or, or some, some explanation of their spirituality. And I'm afraid that we have reduced prayer to such an extent that it is the assumption of most Americans that we're all involved in prayer when it amounts to little more than thinking throughout the course of the day. Identify a window of time in your day that you can set aside to prayer and with some persistence. 
It doesn't take hours within the day to give yourself over to persistent prayer. You might be astonished at what 15 or 30 minutes of focused prayer does for your relationship with Jesus and the course of your day. But establish that time. And with the spirit of Jacob that said to the angel of the Lord, I will not let you go until you bless me. Give yourselves to prayer within that window of time and resist the temptation to let the hectic nature of your schedule prevent you from spending that time in fellowship with God and then identify a day of the week Monday through Sunday one of those days that you're going to give to fasting as a reminder of our deep dependence on the provision of God now I need to say in this litigious society that some of you will have health situations and other things going on factors that will not allow that you could fast in that way let me suggest a, a substitute fast Put away your smart devices for 40 days and see what it does to your walk with Jesus. That might be, and, and that works, and here's why. It works as, as a fast because the purpose of the fast is to prompt you to remember how deeply you need Jesus. If there is a single concern that I get from people with regards to prayer, it's this. Pastor, I just struggle to stay on, stay on track. I'll begin to pray and my thoughts drift off. I, I wander off in my meditations and, and, and I just can't be attentive the way I need to. Let me tell you what will keep you attentive. The hunger in your belly, which will be with you all that day, will remind you to pray and it will remind you of how deeply we need the Lord that man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The discipline in and of itself as an act of devotion and drawing near is useful, it's helpful, it's beneficial to us in all of those ways that we tend to struggle with. Give yourselves over to prayer and fasting. And the absence of that smart device, because it is taking the shape of your ear and the side of your face, will be a constant reminder to you of how deeply you need the Lord. It will be a prompt for you to give yourselves over to prayer. Identify a day of the week that you'll commit to fasting. Pencil in a scripture memory plan. Maybe it's a single verse. Maybe it's five. Maybe it's ten. Maybe you're good with rote memorization and you can remember a chapter in 40 days. Whatever suits your fancy, whatever would be beneficial. But this will give you a repository of God's word that the Spirit would call upon the, truth of the truths of those texts that it would bring to your remembrance the favor and the goodness of God. You'll be amazed at how it helps and encourages, not just in the Spirit, but in overcoming sin. We hide his word away in our heart that we might not sin against God. Rote memory is no longer fashionable. I'm not sure they even teach rote memory in school anymore. We Google everything. This is the age of great information and technology. But the Bible is not intended to function that way. It is intended to be hidden away in our heart to empower us as we overcome sin in our life that we might not sin against God. And then identify some brothers, some sisters within your circle of influence that you'll take the good news of the gospel to within this 40-day window. If we are sincere about wanting to draw near to God, let me tell you a discipline that's really fruitful when it comes to drawing near. Seldom do I sense a greater closeness to God through Jesus Christ than when I'm sharing the good news of the gospel with someone else. Identify some people within your circle of influence that you can pray for, pray with, 
and share the good news of what Jesus has done in your life and what he can do in theirs by faith and repentance. There's the remainder of the page there on page six for other personal goals or issues that you hope to overcome. In my own personal experience, prayer and fasting has been so helpful in overcoming sins that latch on like a leech and do not seem to want to let go. It's been good for lifting needs before God where there's an urgent request or a deep and heavy burden. God has been so faithful to show up and to answer in the most powerful of ways through the disciplines of prayer and of fasting. I want us to see from this passage a few things about prayer and fasting that might be helpful for you uh, in the days ahead. Look now to verse number 5. Jesus says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. In essence, Jesus says, Don't pray like hypocrites. If you want to pray like a hypocrite, pray just to be seen by other people. The prerequisite for public prayer is a healthy, private prayer life. When, when, you're, when you're praying privately, there is no hypocrisy in praying publicly. Jesus says, be careful that you're not a hypocrite in your prayer life, only praying to be seen by others. I assure you, they've got their reward. In verse 6, Jesus instructs us, but when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your Father knows the things you need before you ask. So there are two things that you may do if you want to pray like a hypocrite. I hope that you don't. Pray to be seen by other people and pray with this babbling incoherence. Simply make your requests be known to God. Pray privately. Again, this is not a prohibition against praying publicly. We do that often here, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But, but this, this is a guard against praying to be seen, to be observed by other people. A similar admonition is offered in verses 16 through 18 concerning fasting. Jesus says in verse 16, Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites. For they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. That is, get fixed up. This is the first century equivalent of get your hair done and wash your face. Put oil on your head and wash your face, so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, the focus of both of those two sections is Jesus' insistence that prayer and fasting are not religious rituals, but a means of drawing near to God. You can pray and you can fast in a way that is powerless, in a way that is meaningless, in a way that does not serve your drawing near to God. If your goals for the next 40 days are to check the boxes and to win the approval of people within your family or your connect group or within your friend group or even within the fellowship of the church, if your primary goal is to win the praise of men, you'll reach your goal, but that's all you'll reach. You'll win the praise of men in all likelihood. Jesus says they've got their reward. But there is a deeper, more satisfying, more fulfilling reward that awaits those of us who would labor to draw near to the very God of heaven. 
The goal, the reward is the nearness of God in our life. If we draw near to him, he is faithful to draw near to us. Be careful that your prayer is not intended to be observed by others. Be careful that your fasting is not intended to be observed by others. Now, we seldom ever talk about fasting within the context of American Christianity. I don't know what it looks like outside of Baptist life. Maybe people are better about this than what we are, but I suspect that the same holds true across denominational lines. And most of the reason I think, at least if I'm being generous in my assessment, most of the reason for that is what Jesus says in verses 16 through 18. When you fast, have your hair done and wash your face and carry yourself in an upright manner and don't make the world aware of your fasting. You don't wear a sign that says, I'm, I'm fasting. And I've watched people who were fasting. Like you'd be around the, the staff or former staff or just brothers in general, and it gets time for lunch, and you're preparing to go to lunch, and they just don't know how they're awkward through that situation. And how do I react to this and not get involved in the lunch date and, and maintain the fast and not be braggadocious about the fact that I'm fasting? Hold verses 16 through 18 on fasting up against what Jesus says in verses 5 through 8 regarding prayer. There's no reluctance on our part to pray publicly. We're rather forthright and open about praying publicly and what that looks like and models for prayer and in that context, corporate prayer and prayer within small groups, prayer within the family. We're open and forthright about such things. Now, what I'm trying to press here is that it is an acceptable thing for us to have conversations about the discipline of fasting. It doesn't have to be this top-secret CIA mission in your life to draw near to God. It's acceptable that you share witness, that you testify to the ways that God has used the discipline of fasting in your life to overcome sin or certain challenges or various obstacles that may have come before you along the way. Prayer and fasting, fasting coupled with prayer, have been powerful helps for me personally in my own life at overcoming some great challenges and some major frustrations. I, I've, I've had a, there's a brother in my life, a dear friend, who has fasted and prayed every Monday for years for me. And I'm, I'm convinced that a great deal of the fruit that I enjoy in ministry is a direct result of his perseverance in prayer and fasting for me. Now, we're not sounding the trumpet and saying, hey, look over here at me, I'm fasting. And now walking around and grumbling and groaning through the day about how hungry we are, starving to death, you know. You're going to make it, I promise. I'm looking around, y'all, we all going to make it. We got enough in reserve, we're going to be all right. But we are bearing witness to the fruitfulness of the disciplines of prayer and fasting in our life. Within your connect group, I hope this morning to liberate you to discuss together the, the, the practical bits and pieces of the disciplines of prayer and fasting together within your family, even within the context of the church. Yes, guard yourself against sounding the trumpets as the hypocrites do, but share, have conversations about these disciplines and their benefits to you. It will help to encourage the disciplines here within our, our church context. Now, 
In verses 9 through 15, we really capture the essence of what prayer and fasting are supposed to be about. And this is a passage that many of you are going to be very, very familiar with. It may have sounded weird to you because we did not read it in the King James. And frankly, it sounds weird to me when I read it in anything other than the King James. But the principles, the truths of the text are intact. Look at verse 9. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Jesus says, pray this way, and he begins with worship. When you begin to pray, acknowledge who God is. Celebrate his attributes, his omnipotence, that he is powerful above all things. His omniscience, that he knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that Jesus does not know. Celebrate his omnipresence, that there is no place that Jesus is not, that he is always everywhere, all the time, that he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Celebrate who he is, perfect in his righteousness, absolute in his justice, great in his mercy. Jesus says, pray this way, our Father in heaven, your name be honored or hallowed be thy name. In verse 10, Jesus says, pray this way, your kingdom come. God, may may the world come to know that that you are king, that salvation is found in Christ and in Christ alone, that there is shelter in the blood of the Lamb, that there is cleansing from all our sin. May the boundaries of the kingdom on earth be expanded, and may you be pleased to use us in that process. God, would would you do it through us? Make Jesus famous in all the world. May your kingdom come. Jesus says, pray like this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's such a daring and dangerous prayer. I would challenge you to to make that the beat of your heart, to simply ask, Lord, may your will be done in my life as it is in heaven. One of two things will always happen when you begin to pray that way. You'll either stop praying that way or God will begin to do remarkable things in your life. In sincerity, simply ask, Lord, may your will be done in my life even as it is in heaven. Think through the implications of that, what that might look like in your own personal experience, keeping back no compartment of our life to ourself, but yielding our all to the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, here I am, your faithful servant, my life as a living sacrifice, my reasonable, acceptable offering. God, do with me as you will that the world might know that Jesus Christ is king. Jesus says in verse 11, pray this way, God, give us today our daily bread. Meet my every need. Provide, Father, for me. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, bring us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. There is structure about the manner in which Jesus leads us to pray. We see in verses 9 and 10, prayer as an act of worship. Hallowed be thy name. In verse 11, prayer as an act of faith. God, give us today our daily bread in anticipation of God's provision. Jesus says, request of God and he'll meet thy every need. We looked at that beautiful verse in Philippians 4 and verse 20 last week where the Bible says that my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
In verse 12, we see prayer as a call for grace. God, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. God, give me the grace I need that my sin would be atoned for, forgiven, and cleansed from the slate. And at the same time, give me the power of grace to extend extend the same measure to those who might commit an offense against me. See, in verse 13, prayer as an acknowledgement of our weakness, God, do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Prayer and fasting acknowledges our frailty, our brokenness, our inclination towards sin, how deeply we need the presence of Jesus in our life every moment of every hour of every day of our life if we're to know victory and faithfulness to his word. God, protect us along the way as the trials of life come. Hold me fast and keep me safe and help me to persevere in sanctifying faith. Look at verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. One of the things that I noticed this week in studying through the passage is a lot of commentaries just omit verses 14 and 15 and just move to the next passage. I was looking over some stuff this morning. I have a 700-page commentary on Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three chapters. And in 700 pages, not a single word regarding verse 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6. What what does this mean? It seems ill-placed, doesn't it? You have a section on prayer and a section on fasting with this very straightforward but seemingly strangely placed commandment in verses 14 and 15. Now, you may not like what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. You may not want to hear what Jesus has in verses 14 and 15, but you you don't need a New Testament scholar to unpack the truth of what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. If you forgive people their sins, your Father will forgive you your sins. But if you do not forgive people their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's really very straightforward. And, and, it, and it provides for us some background for understanding the critical nature of what Jesus teaches us to pray in verse 12. Go back there. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What Jesus does in this beautifully straightforward commandment fixed between sections on prayer and fasting is to remind us of the unity that exists between the way we live our life and the fruitfulness of our prayer life. The unity that exists between the fellowship, the communion that we enjoy with God and the way we conduct our life. In other words, you, you can't just go live like a child of the devil and expect that heaven is pleased to hear your petition. Now, I know that makes us uneasy. And the world operates as though prayer is a right that we all enjoy. But I want you to know that communion with God, that prayer that gets above the ceiling is a privilege that has been bought and paid for at a precious price. It has been bought and paid for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 5 and following, God chastises the people of Israel for their prayer and their fasting. 
He says you have prayer days and you have fast days and these seasons of celebration that revolve around prayer and fasting, but you're not praying to me and you're not fasting to me. Rather, like the hypocrites of our passage, to be seen by others, to meet a religious obligation, your prayer and fasting, but it does you absolutely no good because you have so deeply regarded iniquity in your heart. The psalmist says if we regard iniquity in our heart, that is if we hold to sin in our heart, God does not hear our prayers. There is a union that exists between our perseverance in prayer and a personal commitment to holiness. If if you're not committed to prayer, you'll likely not be committed to, well, there's no likely to it. You won't be committed to personal holiness. If your commitment to personal holiness begins to tail off, eventually your prayer life will tail off as well. If your prayer life tails off, eventually your commitment to personal holiness will tail off as well. So this is not just a 40 days of prayer and fasting as an expression of our religious fervor. This is a 40-day season of examining ourselves and asking that God's will would be done in us, even as it is in heaven. Y'all tracking with me this morning? Have we set aside the fear and trepidation about a 40-day period of prayer and fasting? Now, I, I, I didn't come this morning with the great expectation that there was just going to be a falling out within the body and we were all just going to yield to God's Spirit and remarkable things were going to happen within the context of this service. But I do have great expectations about what God may do in your homes and in your life as individuals and in the workplace and in the lives of those with whom you share over the next 40 days if you persist in the plan that we have established for ourselves. Are you ready? I hope that you are. Now, here's, here's what I know. For some, this remains a strange thing. Because in your mind, Jesus is your Sunday morning God. And you roll in on Sunday morning with a consumer mentality that I'm going to be here to check a box and feel better about the situation in my life. God's going to be well satisfied in what I've done on this day. And so tomorrow I can cut loose and rip roar. And I'll come back on next Sunday and get another dose of what I needed to make this past week be okay. Now, I just, I just want you to know this morning, I want you to know, and I, I, think, I think you're going to have to think through this. You're going to have to process this. Jesus is not intended, he has no desire to be your Sunday morning Savior, but to be the Lord over every second of your life. And I want you to know that he's good and that it is a blessed thing to be in the presence of King Jesus, to draw near to the God of heaven. And I I want you to know that the glory of God is pleased to dwell among the praises and the holiness of his people. That when we give ourselves over to drawing near through prayer and fasting and the confession of sin, God is pleased to draw near to us. He desires to draw near to us. The God of heaven desires to draw near to you. But there's no place for that kind of drawing near if you've reserved certain aspects of your life for you. We simply don't have the right to do that. Something like this has no place for consumer Christianity. But oh, what a joy it is for those who wish to walk closely to the Lord Jesus Christ, to know the sweetness of fellowship in the Spirit, the tenderness of the Savior even towards sinners, just relish His presence in our life. 
Do you know him? Do you know Jesus? If, if, you, if you do, you will desire to be near him. When you see him in all of his irresistible and matchless beauty, you'll long to be brought nearer the Savior. When you really come to terms with how great your sin is and how amazing his grace toward you is, do you, do you remember those moments as a child and for some of us even as an adult when you did something that was just horrible and you were caught dead to rights and you wished somehow in those moments between being caught and when daddy got to the room to wear you out for what you did or in some cases, worst cases, those moments between the phone call being made and the police arriving and you wished there were some way Oh, I wish there was some way I could turn back the hands of time and take away this dreadful thing that I have done. Do you realize that that's precisely what Jesus has done for us at the cross? He has taken away those things that we wish there were somehow some way to take away. Now, don't you want to be near to a Savior like that? Brothers and sisters, Examine yourselves this morning. And, and let's begin this time together with arms locked, pressing through these 40 days with, with a shared and deep desire that the Lord would come near and do remarkable things in our midst. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus draws near in your life, it's going to inconvenience you in some incredible ways. It's not going to look like it does today when Jesus draws near. It's going to be called the sacrifice and and to service. There, there are four major themes that this 40-day booklet is sort of a, built around. The, the, the first of those is abiding. We want to encourage you to abide in Christ, to walk with him daily. This, the second of those is connecting. We want you to get connected to connect groups. We want you to be connected to the fellowship of the church. You, you may be here this morning, and the way you need to begin this 40-day season of prayer and fasting is by getting joined officially to the local church and serving in some capacity. You're just hanging around on the periphery. Maybe you're somewhat actively involved in Sunday morning, but you're not serving in some capacity. That's the third major theme, serving the church and the world. You ought to be identifying an opportunity to serve within the context of the church and within the world around us. And then fourth and lastly, is sharing. You ought to be diligent about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with those you come in contact with. Now, for some, this, this strikes your ears like 400-level Christianity. And what I want to challenge you with is the reality that this is just plain Jane gospel Christianity. To walk with Jesus, to abide in him, to serve him, to be connected to his bride, the church, and to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, against that standard, do you know him? Has there been a moment in time in your life when you turned away from the things of this world and to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace and mercy and forgiveness? Have you grown cold? Are you walking faithfully with him? So no matter what stage or station you find yourself in this morning, there's remedy, there's relief. There's grace and there's mercy, but it'll only be found in Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, the chance to meet.
together this way this morning. We don't take that for granted anymore. God, I pray that you be pleased in these next moments to draw near. We ask that dangerous and daring prayer that your will would be done on earth even as it is in heaven. God, I, I pray that you would search us over this morning, that, Lord, as your people and those gathered here in the midst of your people examine themselves, Lord, if there'd be uh, any unbelief, lostness, separation, I pray that through the work of your spirit, God, you would grant the gift of faith, that some would believe and be forgiven of sin, begin this joyous journey of living life with Jesus. God, I pray for those who have been born again but have been reluctant to be faithful in baptism, God, that you would call them out, that they would answer your call on their life in that way. For others who've been a part of the assembly of our church but on the periphery, never truly connecting and serving and meaningful ways, God, I, I pray that today would be the day they put their line in the sand and with determination in their hearts join their gifting with this body that the world might know that Jesus is king. We ask, God, in sincerity that your will be done here, even as it is in heaven. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.